for those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for culture and conservation within fly fishing. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Just like every time, this episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. Jim Barsky and his crew uses professionals in the industry from step one on designing a rod. Professionals like Brian Husky, the founder of Keep Em What. I've really been happy to be part of Scott Fly Rods. Michigan guide Mike Schultz. I've been fishing Scott Rods for close to 20 years. Trent Tatum of Wyoming's The Reef Fly Shop. Scott Fly Rods, build rods to fish. Grant Hu of St. Pete's in Fort Collins, Colorado. As a Scott Pro staff, honored to use the rods and fish the rods and support the company. Gary Merriman of Atlanta's Fish Hawk Fly Shop. I've carried Scott for years. These rods are designed and tested by professionals so that when you take them out of the rod tube, you know that they're gonna work, every single time. To get your hands on one of these fine Scott rods, head down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Cool, it's boogie. All right. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Drake Cast. Last week, I found myself on a sandbar with my good friend, Andrew. This is God's country. That's what it feels like. Andrew and I grew up together. He's normally a pretty shy dude, but when you stick a microphone on him, eventually he forgets that everything he says is being recorded. They're headed for the mine. Life here on the river, it don't matter. We don't dial 911. The Great Wall. Come on, baby, I'm due now. The clock has ticked past due. And I do for a snag. Oh, I got it out. The trees are strong, my lord. These days, Andrew runs a tree service. And when he's not chopping and chipping trees, and I'm not out on the road, we try to make time to get out in a canoe together. Yeah, I think we should get to the rocks. This is definitely like bigger fish country, I think. We're in like a real hot spot for fish, I feel like. Now, Andrew is a spin fisherman but sometimes you have to forgive the sins of your longtime friends. Because on that day, we were both searching for a specific species. What are your thoughts on the smallmouth bass? They're a great fish to catch. One of the best fights that you'll ever get, seems like. You could catch a 18-inch smallmouth that'll feel like a 35-inch muskie. Some people may not agree with that statement, but... And like you said, they're just not that pretty of a fish, but uh, they're feisty little... (laughs) Today, we chase after some good old Midwestern river-dwelling smallmouth bass. But what do you do if the fish just aren't biting like they usually are? This episode is an exploration of experimentation. In between our float with Andrew, we'll hit the water with a guide who makes a living on these fish, learn a few tips, but really, this is just an audio documentation of a fishing trip which I hope you enjoy. There's a eagle sitting in that tree, see that? Oh, nice. Oh, here he goes. It's getting to be too much for him. Andrew and I were on the Chippewa River in western Wisconsin, the headwaters of which begin way up north near the border with the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. 150 years ago, this river was the lifeblood of Wisconsin's timber trade. 
river pigs used this waterway to ferry massive floats of logs down to the lumber mills that were situated on its banks. People moved to the area for the jobs in the mills, and cities sprung up overnight. Cities like Eau Claire, where I was born. As the timber trade waned in the early 20th century, the inhabitants of these towns found new ways to use the Chippewa River to their advantage. Hydroelectric dams popped up, creating reservoirs on which locals and tourists could recreate. Actually, one of these lakes on the Chippewa produced the world record muskie, which weighed in at 69 pounds. The Chippewa is also home to plenty of world-class smallmouth. And while this episode is going to focus on the Chippewa River bass fishery, this river is like so many waterways that teem with fish. And most of the things that we talk about today can be applied to your local bass river. You haven't had any bass yet. No, I haven't. This might be a little too much for him. Andrew was throwing an oversized spinnerbait that hadn't really turned on the bass. There's like so much structure I'm afraid to cast almost. Do it. We'll get it. This is where the fish are now. In the past, we had had luck throwing into the log jams that hugged the outside banks of the river. But on that day, this method was working on neither gear nor fly rod. How goes it today? Not good. We pulled up to a boat anchored in an eddy and asked how they were doing. Should be good as long as this river is. Somewhere. We ain't found them all week. No. We continued floating downstream to the sound of Andrew's various songs. Oh, can you see into my eyes? Cat birds screaming in the banks of town. I got the change in my pocket going ding ling ling In that jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you. Punctuated by the occasional snag, Let go. That's embarrassing. And a lot more singing. There's a cedar on my Peter Whack it I will remember you. And the reason we're listening to the ramblings of a man who forgot he was being recorded is because there isn't any good tape of us catching bass. They just weren't quite there for us. But maybe those fish were there, and we weren't fishing for them correctly. And the reason I bring this doubt into the mix is because a few months back, I found myself in a similar situation while chasing bass with Minnesota guide Lucky Porter. It's like Lyle Murdich and Jim Woolleybugger, like some of the original fly tires in the game. While the river we were fishing was smaller, a lot wilder, and a few hundred miles further north, it was still pretty comparable to the Chippewa. This should be good. This bank's got some really cavernous little mud sloping kind of pockets there. Especially on that corner. There's got to be bass in there. That thing looks so good. That's like three feet tall, that little mud face. And there's like dark water coming out of that creek right there. And just as Lucky had predicted. There we go. Right on the corner like he's supposed to be. Oh yeah, just another giant bass. Good to see they're still here. <laughs> he's fired up. I bet it's like 17, 18 maybe. The standard. 
he felt really warm compared to the air temp. I wonder if that's warmer water coming out of these creeks. It might be. This stretch of water is littered with marshes that fill when the river floods. As the water levels recede, the heated water of the swamps slowly drains into the river, which attracts bait fish, which in turn attract bass. I think with that current coming out of there and then there's a nice little, it's just a, one of those spots. The last time I had fished this stretch of water with Lucky, just about every fish we pulled came from these areas a tactic that we dubbed trickle-down bassonomics. And millions of other men and women like you stand for the values of hard work, thrift, commitment to family, and love of God that made this country so great and will make us great again. And after that first fish, we thought we were golden for the day. Find the trickles, find the fish. I can't believe there's not another one. That one was right where that black water's coming out of there. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of them in there. Only one player. But on that specific day, our approach was a little bit off. Let me get a couple more shots on this. There's got to be a fish right here. You want to get a little closer in there? You can hang right here for a minute, though. Bust a few more casts. Really? No love? We've all been in this situation. We're afraid and confused. We've worked hard. We conserved. We planned. We feel so out of control. You go out with a tried-and-true game plan expecting to just nail them, but your old bag of tricks doesn't produce like you thought it would. Some people would just claim that the river is off or say things like, this has always worked. It's the fish's fault. When this happens, the beer reserves in the cooler tend to dwindle pretty quickly, and you resign yourself to just enjoying a day on the water. But that's not what you do if you're a guide. Lucky began casting in what were normally less productive areas of the river, getting the fly to land as close as possible to shore, sometimes lodging the fly in the muddy banks before plopping it into the water. And when Lucky was using this technique, the fly would often slap the water pretty aggressively. And I asked him if he thought that the fish liked that action. Oh, they like it landing. If they're really fired up and the water's clear, they're following it in the air sometimes. That's how they're like there on it sometimes when it lands. You see that in clear water where, yeah, or they come running like there, they meet it there, you know. It just comes down to if they're eating it good or not. If they're not hitting it good, you're going to have a lot more fish falling off. Probably. Oh, that was a nice one. That was, I don't know why I didn't feel it. That was a nice eat though. He came right off that mud. That's sweet. That was sweet. Yeah, that's what I wanted to see. And on the next cast. Oh, that was, oh look at him chase when I, after I ripped it. He went ripping towards the boat, pulled it, and he's like at the surface, turboed. That's kind of good to see him in that mode a little bit. And we started noticing a pattern. Creeping. Yeah, the ones that are hitting, though, are pretty much smoking it. Yeah. Within seconds of it landing. Yeah, it's that first rip. It's really that pop, pop, you're good. Pop, pop, you know, like sometimes they'll chase it out a little bit if you can see them or whatever, but usually like a rip or two, and they're on that first break, and they just dust it. From there on out, while it wasn't quite lights out. Oh, that's got to have a fish. Really? Oh, there you go. <laughs> nice. Uh, 
Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> he just like I didn't really see the fish. I just saw the thing disappear. That's a decent fish though. The other one was kind of on the low end of like the good average ones. And this one's right there. He's just a little bit bigger, I think. He snarfed that thing. Oh, not a lot of food coming out of him. I saw some dragonflies in him on the NAM the other day. Okay. One had a fresh crayfish claw sticking out there. <laughs> oh yeah. They're on the shallow banks. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He's bigger too. They're on the shallower stuff. This is a shallower bank. Yeah, okay. Okay. And there's a couple of them. <laughs> That's a pretty solid one. Yeah. I did stab you pretty good, but I'm going to make it better. I promise. That's a nice fish. There you go, buddy. Take a look at my life, I'm a lot like you. I need someone to love me the whole day through. Back on the Chippewa with Andrew, we stuck with our tactic of throwing right into the log jams. And finally, we got one to take. That was too cool. It's <laughs> a nicer one. Oh, he has a bait fish in his mouth. Yeah. You had to put it, you see where I had to put it though? It was oh, yeah. like in Literally the shit. On the log. I think yeah. more Gotta go to the debris, buddy. That was really cool. And just like freaking shotgunned it away. Boom! Just like out of a, you know, like a TV show for bass fishing. Unfortunately, the rest of the float was pretty uneventful because we still hadn't quite cracked the Chippewa smallmouth code. Now, this is a logical spot for an ad break, but when we come back, Andrew and I take another stab at the old Chippewa. At the end, we'll get a current fishing report from Lucky and hear an incredible story from my friend Andrew. So stick around. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by the fine folks at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, the leaders in fly fishing travel. Normally, for these ads, we chat with somebody from Yellow Dog, but I want to let you know that Yellow Dog is more than just a booking agency. Recently, I've been spending quite a bit of time perusing the Yellow Dog Backstage Pass, which is their blog. It's a great place to conduct research for your dream trip, or just to kill a couple hours at the office. Their articles range from which flies work best in each corner of the world, some of them outline fishing seasons in places like New Zealand or the Bahamas, and there's also a ton of interviews and tips from pros like Jeff Courier and Oliver White. The entire Yellow Dog team knows more about fly fishing than you or I ever will in a lifetime. To absorb some of the knowledge and look at some real pretty pictures, swing on over to their website, yellowdogflyfishing.com. And finally, we'd like to tell you about the original, handmade products from Deli Fresh Design, a fly fishing apparel company based in the heart of Denver, Colorado. Their diverse product line ranges from beer koozies, 
These are made out of either Cordura or you could get it in sailcloth as well as repurposed waders. Comes with a lanyard where you can hold your beer in front of you while you're on the river. So you can row, you can cast, you can land a fish. Two liter wallets for those two-handers out there. Ideal for shooting heads or you've got some extra tips. There's two internal pockets. To on the water fishing bags. So we have a backpack and then we have a sling pack. It has one large big pocket that's zippered. The uh, sling pack version is symmetrical. So it could be worn off of either shoulder and everything is behind you. There's nothing in front that can deter you or get snagged in your fly line while casting. It's always accessible for really super quick uh, changes. Uh, then that's the way to go. And these products are so unique that they really don't look like anything else you'll see on the river. To check out one of these handcrafted, river-tested works of love, head over to DeliFreshDesign.com or follow them on social media, at DeliFreshDesign. Okay, back to the bass fishing. Bring this net, probably. A week after that first float on the Chippewa, Andrew and I both had an evening off, and we decided to give the river another chance. This time on the water right through the town of Eau Claire. You know, definitely sandy soil because we got uh, white pines and red pines and oaks, but uh, also a riparian area, so a lot of herbaceous understory, steep terrain. (laughs) (laughs) You have to remember that Andrew is an arborist, so he kind of sees the world differently than you and I. We put in below the Dells Pond Dam in the shadow of the Cascade paper mill and set off from shore. Sounds good. This is a big bank. Describe the scene. (laughs) All right, so we are uh, floating down the Chippewa River right in the middle of town, pretty much even with the confluence of the Eau Claire River and the Chippewa River. And uh, I'm standing in the front of the canoe, going down the river backwards, fishing the shoreline. But this time, with Lucky's tips in mind, I asked Andrew if he had any desire to throw the fly rod, something that he had never really done before. Here we go. Back on the old fly rod. Something to slap in the water, huh? Throwing flies, touching the sky, fishing for eyes. Thorn in my side. I know I'm surprised that we haven't had the action. Oh, there we go. Nice. (laughs) Right away. A big guy. (laughs) This is a little smallmouth, little, uh, the first fish I've ever caught on the fly rod. What cast is that? Like the third. (laughs) Maybe even less. Just talking about how it uh, was a little bit dead out here. Insta fish. Yeah, that was great. Four or five pounder right there. Oh yeah, for sure. Four or five ouncer. All right, just like that. What what are your thoughts on this whole fly rod thing? I like the rapid attack of the shore, which is where it seems like the fish are. You know, you don't really have to take much time away from the shore, if that makes sense. You can be constantly striking the shoreline, which is, you know, with a conventional setup, you kind of have that downtime between the shore and, oh yeah, another bass. <laughs> yes, dude, this is great. <laughs> it's perfect for this situation, as you can see. That was awesome. And they're just surfacing for this little popper, I guess is what this thing is, or I don't know what you'd call it, hopper dropper. Disco midge. 
Wow, that was great. A little bigger? Yeah, it is. A little more of a fight. He's got some spunk, this one does. It's funny, like a different, like a one inch difference in size and uh, double the fight. And they usually strike within like 36 inches of shore. It's cool that they're really coming after this, you know. After throwing that spinner bait that whole time and not having any action, all of a sudden we're like not even trying and catching fish. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty addicting. I mean, just uh, you have to like apply an extra level of concentration, at least I do at this point, so that kind of, you know, makes a bigger draw. And from there, it wasn't an incredible bite, but there were definitely fish interested in what we were throwing. There we go. That was great. Enticed. <laughs> nice, man. But you also have to remember that we're not smallmouth guides. And pretty soon, we had relaxed on the whole fishing thing and just took in the scene. Whoa. That's a huge one, dude. We paddled up next to beavers. It's going to slap the tail. This is a big one, dude. I guess we're really close. It was like doing a, some sort of bizarre ritual getting in the water there. That was really weird. They are the craziest of animals. That was a calm beaver. It's a city beaver, I guess. Or a rabid one, one of the two. Oh gosh, there it was. It's waiting for that to happen. Got within 20 feet of a couple great blue herons. Look at that bird. Looks like an old man hunched up. There it goes. Oh my god, that must have been that beaver again. Was that beaver? There's someone throwing a rock. <laughs> That's about all it could have been. I'm thinking that had to have been beaver. All the while floating by reminders of our adolescence that has since passed. Oh, this is a rope swing that we used to uh, come to and swing into the water. It was pretty radical. Now it's totally horizontal next to the shore. I think this may have been the first place I witnessed someone smoking pot. Oh, really? Actually, when I was a kid fishing right at that pipe, I people were smoking weed up there, and I like knew kind of like they were smoking something because you could tell, like you could smell it, but I didn't know what weed was at the time. Didn't you used to come fish down here a lot? Tons, yeah. What'd you catch? Smallmouth, moon eye, freshwater drum. <laughs> that was the big one that I never knew what the hell it was. I like went home and researched it. It was on a little ultralight rod, so it was pretty exciting. Once again satisfied that we knew how to catch fish, Andrew went back to his spinning rod and told me this kind of incredible story. So I run a little tree service and uh, I end up with a ton of mulch or wood chips from the chipper. And so I posted on Facebook Marketplace that I had some mulch and one lady responded and of course she was like 30 miles away, but I had the afternoon free so I thought I'd deliver some mulch to her. But I was also taking care of my parents' dog, which is a German short-haired pointer. He weighs about 75 pounds. So he's kind of a big dog, but he's not like huge, but he's, you know, pretty good size. And he has this insane bird drive. like. He chases wild turkeys all the time. He's always looking up in the trees at birds singing. He's just like, 
a bird maniac because that's what they are you know they're flushing dogs and uh, so I bring them along because no one else is home and I thought better than keeping them in the kennel and finally we get to this place and it's out in the country and you know I get out of the car the woman's there I ask her I think I even asked her right away like do you have any animals is it okay if I let my dog out and she said, oh, we have chickens and other dogs. And I'm like, oh, well, we better not let him out because he just goes crazy for, for birds. And she's like, okay. And then, you know, about 15 minutes in, I'm like dumping mulch and just kind of getting all set. And she's, she says, oh, I penned up the chickens. You can let your dog out now. I'm like, all right, great. Cause he's been whining in the truck, trying to, you know, get out and stretch his legs and whatever. And so I let him out and I'm like, you know, dumping the last load and, oh, got a snag. And all of a sudden I hear this woman yell, oh no. And I turn around in time to see the dog basically pouncing on top of this chicken. And uh, he gets it in his mouth and he runs around the backside of the house. And I just have to give this like insane yell. And then he drops the chicken. Because once he has it, he's kind of like over it. And he's maimed her chicken. So then I'm here, you know. She had just paid me like a hundred bucks for the malt. And she had an armful of large zucchini and eggs that she had given me from the same chickens. And uh, now she's got herself a maimed chicken. So it was pretty embarrassing. What, how did you rectify the situation or attempt to? So yeah, I didn't know what to do. You know, it's like, what do you say? You're like, oh, sorry. And I said that plenty. And then, uh, you know, I was like, there's gotta be some way I can compensate, you know? I'm like, what do I do? That, that was like literally what I asked her, what can I do? And so I ended up giving her $10 back for the chicken because that's all that I could do. You know, it's like, what? You know, so the, the load of mulch delivery was at a reduced rate because the dog killed one of her chickens. But, uh, I told her as I left, you know, if you ever need more, just let me know. But next time I won't bring the dog with. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Oh. Put it in there again. What was that? That was, that was a big, big beefy Yeah. Gosh, that Damn, was big that body. Was... Oh. oh. We just hit it. Get the thing in there. <laughs> Gosh, dude, I'm messing up. Two strikes. I don't think he's going to come back again. I think it was a northern. I think I saw the spots or the, you know, the stripes. So you're telling yourself so you don't feel as bad? Yep, exactly. Because you got to remember, where there are smallmouth bass, there are also toothy critters that will nearly stop your heart. As the night came to an end, we eventually sat our rods down and watched the sunset. So we stumbled upon a big, big hatch, some sort of mayfly, white, probably size 10. For a while there, the moon eye, which are this white, small bass that looks like a big bait fish. We're just sipping them. We're just out in the middle of the city, surrounded by nature. Look at these bugs. This is a crazy hatch. It is a crazy hatch. Um, I was telling Erica how it, you know, I kept feeling like I gotta drive a far ways to go recreate or, you know, just get up north and experience the fun nature and outdoors, but can just stick right local here because we're pretty much in it you know pretty far up north here in Eau Claire. 
Just the other day, I called up Lucky Porter to see what the bass are hitting on right now. He had just ended five days of guiding in northern Minnesota, and he went on to tell me how he expects to target bass through the rest of the season. What's going on? How was, uh, how was the last few days of fishing? It started getting pretty decent. You know, it's kind of weird for a little while at the high water. But it got back to where it's supposed to be, and fish were going. Yeah, they haven't been on those creeks this year. Really? Early season they were a little bit, but yeah, I mean, we got one off of one yesterday, and that was the first one in like two weeks. And where 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 were they? Just spread out through the yeah down the banks, which is fine. But usually there's at least you know a few more like fifty fifty shot at one of those creeks or something. But they're pretty much dead on that. And this episode is a little bit about like what to do when your normal techniques aren't working. Let's say you show up to a river and it's just not exactly how you envisioned it to be and your normal techniques are not working. What what do you do to try to crack that code and figure out what's going to make those fish hit? Really, I don't know, a smallmouth. You just kind of go through the little assortment of size, color, action with different flies and everything. And honestly, most of the time, it's just kind of got to be up to the fish. By the time you find them, where they're at or when they're trying to bite, seems like they're usually coming from the same sort of places and eating the same sort of stuff. It's just a matter of something had them put off for a little bit there and they weren't feeding or whatever. Maybe they moved or they're hiding deeper into cover with higher water, or things like that. Can you give me even an example of like getting out on the river and you started fishing one technique and eventually switch to another one? And what made you consider doing that? Yeah, a lot of times I'll start out, if it's been a cool night or something for small eyes, I'll start out running at least one subsurface fly and maybe one topwater and maybe a couple subsurface flies. As soon as you start to see a couple fish, a lot of times I'll at least switch one of them over to topwater. As soon as you start seeing a couple fish on topwater, usually I pretty much switch over to that just because that's how I like to catch them. Not that it's always going to be the most effective, but sometimes it is. And it's always a lot more fun seems to have them come up to the surface. I completely agree with that. And what uh, what's the smallie fishing been like so far? It's been this pretty year? good. We've had some high water that's thrown things for a loop. Basically just giving them more places to hide out and making it a little harder to put stuff right in their face when they're not in super, super aggressive mode. But overall, it's been pretty good. You know, they're usually a pretty consistent fish, so hasn't been anything too crazy as far as that goes. And what's, what does it look like from here on out for smallmouth season? Where are we at here? August, we got another probably a good month and a half or so, depending on the weather, of pretty good smallmouth fishing as the season changes how will your tactics and techniques change you know most of the stuff we do with the fly rods targeting them is kind of their summertime pattern you know as the water cools down they go a little deeper some river systems they migrate quite a long way so there's places where you can find some concentrations of them as they're migrating but generally those fish are getting a little deeper in their you can run sinking lines and streamers and stuff if you know where they're held up, but generally once they start making that move towards colder water stuff, 
that's when we shift our focus a little bit more towards muskies just personally just this is kind of run of the mill but like what what are your top five smallmouth flies top five i probably only really fished three or four so, i mean murder's minnows are real good and you know schultz's d and d's are good or swinging d's i guess they are he's like a boogle bug or a squarehead popper or deer hair diver that's pretty much enough to get the job done just about anywhere <laughs> he also shared a few thoughts on those bigger toothier critters like the one that attacked andrew's allure at the end what's your motivation for targeting a smallmouth i know as a guide it's probably a little easier to get a client on a smallmouth than it is to take a first-time fly fisher and get them a muskie but like what where what is your appreciation of the smallmouth bass besides the economic influence well not probably it's a hundred times easier to get somebody on a smallmouth that's never fly fished before but you know it's just more of a relaxed enjoy the day kind of fishing you know casual about it if you miss a fish who cares probably going to get another bite when you get good bass days you're getting big numbers of fish a good musky day could still only be one or two fish so you got to be a lot more intense about it and want to really be willing to work hard and go all day for a possible encounter or two and you know anything above that is pretty much a bonus really when you're musky fishing thanks for listening this has been the drake cast